Hello, product innovators. Today, we learn from one of the leading lawyers in North America for scaling product companies on how to raise your first million dollar funding round. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, onto the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Ryan Lewenden to the show. Ryan is a co-founder and partner at the law firm Gianuzzi Lewenden LLP. They have 30 lawyers, 1,500 product companies they work with, and hundreds of finance deals run by them per year, in addition to a number of other legal and advisory services to help scale product companies. Today, Ryan is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventor startups and small manufacturers can raise their first big fundraising round of $1 million or more, how to plan for it, execute on it, and then spend the money smart when it comes in. Now, on to the episode. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the show. Kevin, thanks so much for having me. I'm really pumped to be here. Well, we're excited today to talk about getting the big dollar financing, talking about raising that money between a million dollars or even up to a hundred million dollars as you're starting to scale your hardware business. And it's really important for hardware startups, even to think about this from the early phases, because so many hardware product development companies today grow through financing and they scale through it because you've got inventory and growth and all of this sort of stuff. All that happens after you sell your first few units. And it's really important to think about that as you plan on how you're going to not only get your brand to market, which is the first critical step, but after that, how are you actually going to grow it into a scalable, sizable business? And you've got a tremendous amount of experience in that today. So first and foremost, give us a bit of insight of how did you get from where you were to being a big partner at this big law firm today. Thanks, Kevin. You know what? It's an interesting pathway to get here. I went to school in New Orleans. I actually ran a bar in college in New Orleans, and that's where I sort of developed a affinity for consumer goods, but also where I started to notice that consumers were looking for more artisanal and sort of smaller batch, smaller made goods. This is sort of in the early 2000s. I ended up sort of working at a firm with my now partner, Nick, and we ended up being the first lawyers for vitamin water together. So we were general corporate lawyers. The founder's dad was a client of the firm and he said, hey, you know, can you help my son? And Nick and I ended up doing everything for vitamin water. So every round of financing, every commercial lease, every broker agreement, distributor agreement, supply agreement, employee incentive plan, every celebrity agreement. I think a like 50 cents deal with vitamin water where he had his own, where he had his own flavor and he had equity in the company. Um, was like one of the first deals I worked on out of uh, law school. And like Jennifer Aniston's deal with Smartwater, which ended up being one of the longest running sort of um, uh, celebrity partnerships. I think it went on for over a decade. We did everything for vitamin water till it sold in, in 2008 for $4.7 billion. And from there, we just realized there was a big white space for people working with disruptive consumer brands, right? Lots of people want to work for the conglomerates. You know, lots of people want to work for the big funds. Nobody really wanted to work for the entrepreneurs and the disruptors. And we had this great playbook from vitamin water. And we, you know, we, we, we realized that we had this aptitude for working with, you know, disruptors. And we liked working with people who were sort of, you know, bucking the odds. And, um, you know, we went to our first trade show in 2008 and we just sort of had our business cards and we're like, Hey, we're lawyers. Do you, do you need lawyers? And people were like, 
well, we're not getting sued. And I'd be like, well, that's not what we do. You know, we help you build your company. We help you raise money. We help you build your infrastructure. We help you take you through a sale. And, you know, we just realized there was such an app. People were like, oh my God, yeah. I had like six employees and now I have 68 employees. And my lawyer's a trust and estates guy who's friends with my cousin. And they don't know what a distributor does. And they don't know what a bill back is. And I just need someone with a contextual basis in this industry of consumer goods. And, you know, we realized we had that. And um, we left the firm we were at in 2011. And uh, we we took a little space in the meatpacking district of New York with, you know, Nick, myself and our, our partner, Anthony. And, you know, we had maybe like 25 clients and we just built it out from there. You know, we built it out uh, word of mouth, doing a great job, executing for sort of our clients over and over. And today we've got 30 lawyers. We've got two locations. We've got, uh, you know, our, we've got two floors in the meatpacking district where we started and then we've got an office in Santa Monica, California, where I'm where I'm speaking to you uh, from today. And we've got about 1,500 companies uh, in the space that we work with, and, and they run the gamut, right? They run the gamut from you know uh, companies like Oatly and Body Armor and Vital Proteins and Fever Tree and companies that are doing you know a billion dollars in revenues to a couple hundred million dollars in revenues. And then it goes, and then it goes all the way back to you know somebody who's really just ideating their their product right now and is pre revenue and is forming their entity. And we we just see ourselves as like this life cycle council for companies that are being disruptors in their industries and you know especially consumer goods industries. Sometimes it's funny to see where we got here, but we just built it through doing a great job for these companies that really nobody else wanted to work with when we started doing it. And that's amazing because nowadays you're doing well over a hundred financing deals a year, working with over 1500 companies, and you've worked with a lot of early stage scaling companies. So your perspective is incredible because you've got to see many different types of these deals come through. And really you've got to see what works and what doesn't work. So really what I want to focus on today is that life, life cycle of raising a bigger funding round that let's say million dollar and north funding round. So you've got some sales, you're starting to grow, and now you really want to take your business into the big leagues. What can you advise our folks to do that are in that position to try and prepare for getting that big league funding? Well, there's a lot of things to do to to prepare yourself for that big league funding. And there's even more things to do to set yourself up for success through that big league funding, right? You know, Funding, if you're looking at funding as the battle and, you know, selling your company someday or IPOing is the war, you want to make sure that you win the war and not just the battle, right? So setting that up, right-sizing that round for yourself is truly, truly important. So here's a couple of things to do on the financing side, right? First, you got to figure out whether this round of financing is your only round of financing or one of many, right? Am I raising a million dollars? to take me through profitability, whereby I'm not going to be taking in any more equity anymore? Or is this one of you know 20 rounds of financing that I'm going to need to get myself through an exit, right? Do I need, are my capital needs over the next five years, a million dollars or a hundred million dollars, right? And, and that's going to really inform who your investor is, right? Am I taking in, you know, am I, am I raising this million dollars, but I'm going to need a ton more money and I'm going to need to sort of bring in a, uh, a much more sophisticated partner at, at a certain time. And the, the investor right now is, is kind of a stopgap. Or am I bringing in this money and this partner is going to take me, is, this is going to be my, my preeminent partner all the way through an exit, right? More often than not, 
it's going to be the former. You know, your million dollar round is going to be a predecessor to a $20 million round or a $100 million. So when you're starting at your million dollar round, you want to get the right investors, right? Who is the investor at that stage? Well, first of all, it's someone who understands your industry, right? You want to bring investors who understand your industry, who understand your growth trajectory, who understand the, the issues and the hurdles that you're going to need to overcome. Um, the right, the wrong match can really lead to a lot of conflicts as things go by, right? Hey, I brought in a real estate investor into my products company. They thought I'd be profitable from the next day. They're wondering why I'm not getting dividend checks. I'm operating at a deficit until sort of, you know, until I get to $50 million in revenues. It's a terrible match. It, it drags you down operationally. It can, it can be issues, you know, it just... It really hurt. It really stifles your growth, right? So first, you find the right match. Then you find the right terms. So if this is an early stage funding and you're going to need lots more money and you're going to have to give away more of the partnershipy type of um, of of terms later on, like board seats and blocking rights, and you know maybe even a redemption right for someone that's a real industry partner. Well, you kind of want to leave the company as blank of a canvas as you can leave it now. You don't want to give away a lot of those rights if someone's not going to be your long-term partner, right? You don't want to give a board seat to someone who's going to invest in this round, but never invest in any other rounds you're going to need down the line. So you want to structure that round without giving away sort of a lot of the true partnership uh, rights that you would often give to um, a more, a more long-term um, partner, right? So what does that mean? Right. Well, how do I raise the money then? Well, I find maybe out of that million, instead of getting it from one party, I'm getting it from a number of parties, right? Instead of taking the million from one person, I'm taking a hundred thousand dollars from 10 people, right? I'm sort of what we call passing the hat around. And I'm doing a sort of a more benign financing. And maybe I'm doing a safe note or I'm doing a convertible note where I'm not having to give away a lot of these rights, right? And then the third thing you can really do, and, and this sort of informs the other two, is you got to figure out <clears throat> what the story is for the company. Why is this round going to be a good deal for whoever's coming in? And I tell people this all the time. When you're doing a million to $5 million round of financing, um, you're going to have to tell, you're going to have to do the work to tell investors why this is a good deal at this valuation in these good terms. When you start raising like, you know, 10, 20, 50 million dollars like in equity, people are going to be more sophisticated. They're going to have a team. They're going to dig into your company. They're going to tell you what you're worth, right? They're going to sort of backstop that. But when you're but when you're like a million to 5 million, the investors want you to tell them that. They want you to tell them why, you know, coming in at a 20 million dollar valuation or a 10 million dollar valuation is a good deal for them. They want you to be able to tell them, "Hey, look, once I spend this money, um, if you're coming in at a $10 million valuation, the company's going to be worth 20, right? You're going to double your money in 12 or 36 months or however long that's taking you. They want you to show, to build that mousetrap for them and present it to them and convince them why this is going to be a good investment at this time right now, right? Not in the next round. Don't wait for the next round. You got to get on the bus now because it's leaving the station and the next stop, the ticket price is going to double. That's powerful stuff. It's interesting hearing it from you about raising a million dollars because I know for a lot of hardware startups, they look at the million dollar raise as the holy grail. Like this is the big leagues. This is when you've truly made it. But when you're a professional investor and 
and you've been in the game I and mean, you, especially as a lawyer working with all these investors and hardware startups and scale-ups, you see that this is only the first piece of usually many more rounds that come with it. As a hardware startup, it's one of these things where you really have to think long-term. Think of your five or your 10-year plan, not just looking at that million dollars as, as the holy grail and then and that's it. Life is made because that really is just a stepping stone to increasingly better valuations and exponentially more money that helps you scale at such a faster rate than you would, which comes back to your original decision are you going to raise this million and that's going to be it and you're going to grow your business off it? Or is that the first of many rounds? And we certainly see it quite often, especially in the consumer electronics space, that as you get your first round, subsequent rounds are right behind it. And a lot of the time your investors are actually helping set that up for that next round and whatnot. But I think it's really important for the everybody to look at that strategic planning and looking further down the line, because that'll help address some of these issues very early on in that process. Yeah. Understanding your cash needs and your trajectory for your particular product are so important to building sort of a network of financings, which helps keep you in the driver's seat, right? Um, You know, you can always raise money and, you know, your investor comes in and says, oh, you didn't raise enough. You need to raise more. But, you know, when you do that, um, oftentimes that's at the sake of sales, right? You're undercapitalized. You start to peter off because you don't have enough money to keep the trajectory going. Or, you know, you're, you're doing that at sort of the risk of uh, cutting the new investor a much better deal, right? So thinking about being starting from where you are and thinking about the, the next five, seven, whatever it is, 10 years, and kind of planning out what are my cash needs realistically going to be? It's all an estimate, right? You don't have to be perfect, but getting a sense of that can help you sort of architect what these rounds look like and who the best partners can be from the get-go. And 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 honestly, that outside of more than anything else, what I've seen, and, and you know, I've raised, you know, probably thousands of rounds of financing with, with my clients. Um, I think that is one of the biggest indicators of success long-term for people that are able to sort of plan that out and map that out and then execute on those types of financings with finding the right partners on the right terms um, at the right times is sort of, it's one of probably the three biggest things you can do to end up, you know, to get yourself to a successful exit. Let's talk a bit about those instruments that you mentioned earlier, the safe investment, as well as coupon rates, that sort of stuff. Can you just explain those different options for people who aren't familiar with the process? Because those can be very helpful, especially in the early days of fundraising, when you're not exactly sure how to value your company, you may not necessarily need to. The point is to get cash in the bank. You obviously have a need, you're looking to raise a million dollars, you see that there's some clear prospect, usually it's around production and sales. And that is a very attractive pitch, especially for a new innovation. So some of the things that sometimes scare, especially the first-time fundraiser or first-time startup in the hardware space is the concept of valuations and putting it together. Well, some of the instruments are very helpful with that. So from your perspective, can you just walk through those uh, so that people understand what they are, at least just to put it on their radar? Yeah, absolutely. So so look, I mean, just the the base and type of financing is usually an equity financing, which would usually be a preferred preferred shares where the investors get their money back in some form or fashion uh, before the founder participates, or a common round of financing where sort of everybody's treated pro rata from the get-go. Uh, the issues with those are that you have to pick a valuation for the company almost always, right? And a lot of founders, especially earlier on, are very reticent to do that because, you know, look, if you're taking your multiple at what you would get when you're mature and you're putting it on your sales now, you're you're 
you know, you're not worth very much, right? Um, so one way to get around that is to use some type of convertible instrument, which would usually be a safe, which stands for simple agreement for future equity or a convertible note, right? Um, and both of those, what they do is they allow you to take money in now. You don't pick a valuation now. What happens is the investors in this round put their money in and then they convert into equity at your next financing, right? And they usually convert in at a discount to that round of financing or some type of valuation cap, right? So oftentimes it will say, hey, look, I'm in a safe and I convert into your next round of financing at sort of the better of a 20% discount or some type of valuation, right? The idea being that if you take in their million bucks and maybe you're worth maybe you're worth $5 million when you take in the million dollars, if you can somehow use that million dollars to get yourself to a $100 million valuation, uh, the investors converting at a 20% discount to that wouldn't be too happy. So they usually ask for some type of cap on that. And theoretically, that cap should be aspirational to the value that you raise at today, right? So if you think you're worth $5 million today and you don't want to raise money at $5 million valuation, um, your valuation cap on your safe or your note should be aspirational, right? Maybe it's 10 million bucks or 20 million bucks or, or something higher than you'd be able to raise equity at today. Um, and and that's, that's something to steer clear of, right? A lot of times people go out with the convertible instrument. The investors want to negotiate them back to a valuation cap at which they'd raise equity at anyways. And, and that's not a great deal for you. So convertible instruments, they're great for kicking the valuation down the road. And then for evaluation cap, you want that to be aspirational for what you would get today. You don't, you want it to be above and beyond uh, what you think you would reasonably raise money at in an equity round today. Yeah. If it's done right, it's a great instrument, right? Because the reality is you can't value your company today and it creates a kind of win-win for both parties. If you're able to scale up substantially, then the investor, they do win well, but it also still leaves you with quite a bit of equity room to sell, which will be much easier to sell at a much higher valuation down the road. And it's a great instrument as well on the, in the reverse for the investor so that when a professional investor later on, like let's say you do get your, you go for your now $10 million round, as you mentioned before, you're going to have a very strategic, very intelligent investor at that point. They will be pegging a value to your company most likely at that point as well. So what that allows the investor prior to do is to get in at a fair rate, according to what a high level expert that's putting in big bucks is doing, but also at a discount because they got in early. And that's yeah. really a nice instrument. So it's somewhat of a win-win for both parties. Something, obviously, you know, you need to, as a listener on the show, research more uh, or, or reach out to somebody like Ryan to understand these instruments more before you're going to raising that first million dollars. But these are the instruments that if you're going to start Googling something, just get to know them on, on basic principle, because you can start plan planning ahead based on cash flow needs of your company, what you actually plan to do with that money going forward, or how you could use that money and leverage it into thinking about multiple rounds, not just raising that million. And that's the end of the road. Yeah. And, and, you know, Kevin, if you're raising multiple rounds, you know, what's great if you can get over the hump of the early rounds is that the dilution starts to become less and less when you're talking about big valuations, big check sizes, the dilution starts to become pretty minimal. So what's really important is getting those first couple rounds right, right? Not giving away too much uh, equity. And I've seen it a lot of times, like people just want the money in, they take a really low valuation. And by the time you get to a viable sort of business, the founders own so little of it. You know, they're like, you know, my valuation's great, the funding's great, but I'm I'm kind of a an employee at this point because I don't have enough of an equity stake. And the and and 
the only way you end up with a good chunk is if you get those first couple rounds right and you're able to one get the money on good terms but then to really execute on that money to get yourself over and above those valuations that you got to exceed. Let's talk about executing on that money. Uh, you were telling me a story before the show about a company that, that did a big round, thousands of units in production, but they didn't go through all the early phase things that are very necessary for a hardware company. Just talk on that experience because I think that's very relevant to especially raising your first scaling round and sure, some of the sure. mistakes you can make along the way. Yeah. I mean, you know, in addition to sort of actually setting the financing terms and, and whatnot, there's a lot of things you can do to put yourself in success for a financing, right? And one of them is just securing and taking the right steps with your supply chain and your partners from an IP perspective, but also from an operational perspective, right? And it's something I help people do sort of day in, day out for my firm. You know, you raise your money, you got to spend it to execute on your plan. We help you do that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I had, I came in contact with a client who, um, they had a line extension. It was a really, it was a great product. Uh, they worked with a co-packer on it and, um, you know, they, they wanted to use the co-packer to R and D it and create it. Uh, they ordered a couple, you know, tens of thousands of units and, and, and ready for the holidays and they all came out wrong. Right. And the tough part about that is, uh, especially when you're a younger company, you don't have a ton of leverage, right? Like in this case, the manufacturer was wrong. The supplier was wrong. It didn't come to spec. They weren't working and it was totally their fault. But like, you know, the smaller company doesn't have a war chest to go to go to like a big, long litigation. So you have to work with the folks, right? And that ended up sort of delaying the orders to redo them. It was after the holidays, they missed the season. So in terms of your supply chain, a couple of things. One, you got to get your agreements right. You got to find the right, parties, but you also want to make sure that you put the right people in. So using a design firm, like someone like yourself to help do the design ahead of time before you go to the co-packer and not sort of conflating those things to save a couple bucks, that can really just put you so far ahead in terms of your, your growth cycle. And look, like you said, at a certain point, it, you're going to be raising money based on what you've done, not on what you should or might do. So you want to make sure you execute and you spend that money really wisely and you make sure every dollar spent goes to put it advancing the company and not sort of to mistakes or backtracking or, re, or redoing things. That's uh, so powerful because keep in mind, when you're going to raise funding, they're looking at the health of your business. And as a consumer product company, really the primary thing they look at is your product. Is it a great product? And does the market like it? You obviously are a small business in the hardware startup space. When you're in that position, you've got to think about, well, what can you show within that limited exposure to prove that you can scale? So we're a big advocate on the show of get your first 500 units out there. Well, the biggest part of getting 500 units out there isn't just the fact that you show that, yes, somebody bought them and you've got this revenue coming in. That is a big deal and that's great. But the other side of it is it, is, is it a well-oiled machine? Do those people like the product? Do they come back to buy it again if it's a recurring revenue product? Do they refer it to a friend if it's a non-recurring revenue product? All of these things come into the quality of the product that you put out to market. Presumably, if you're a listener to the show and you've got a hardware startup, it's because you have something innovative, which I think is the, the first and most important thing as the spark. You're creating something that is unique that the market needs. It's either solving a pain point or creating an opportunity for your buyer. But in conjunction, are you doing a good job on executing on that? All of this then pans into that, really that first million dollar raise, because that's kind of at the point where you've shown a little bit of sales or possibly pre-revenue if you're hot enough that maybe you've got a Kickstarter campaign that's generated some sales and you can use that to show interest. 
but really you're probably selling your first few hundred units. You've got some traction, both financially, but also with user reviews. At that point, that's when you're in a really good standpoint, if things have gone well, to raise that round. Now, if things have gone poorly, that puts you in an exponentially worse position. Because like Ryan said, you're really using your past success to predict your future earnings, which is what the valuation is based off of. So it's critically important that even if you're only selling a few units to start, because you're a hardware startup, you must do that well. Well, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that, Kevin. That was awesome. So Ryan, let's talk a bit further down the path. Let's say you've sold some units. You've now generated enough interest and hype to raise your million dollar plus financing round. How do you spend that money well? Now, there's a couple of different things, right? First, I would say you've, you've funded your company, build out your, build out your human capital, right? Find people that fill in your experience gaps. It's super simple, right? But I do find that most people usually hire immediately for the things they're already good at. So if you're like, like if you are naturally a marketer, they sort of build the marketing team first, right? Or if you're naturally an ops person, they build more into the ops because that's what they understand. But you got to do the other. You got to do the opposite side. What am I, where are my weaknesses? Where are the things I don't like doing? Build into that, hire into that, shore that up so that those things are being covered, right? A, a company that's got great marketing, but the operations are weak is going to implode. A company that's got a great product that nobody knows about isn't going to go anywhere. So you got to build in, you got to make a well-rounded team. You got to put experts around yourself, um, whether that's internal or external in terms of building out your advisory board, right? You want to put people who aren't employees, maybe you can't afford as employees, but you want to bring them around your company, right? Someone that's done what you're looking to do. Someone that's got deep experience in the things that you're um, not experienced in, right? The crazy thing about these industries is that, when you are an entrepreneur and you are dealing with your producers or your investors or your retailers, all of those parties have a lot more experience than you. The investors have invested in thousands of companies and maybe you've raised a couple rounds, right? Maybe you've exited one company before and this is your second, but they've invested in thousands. The retailers have done agreements with thousands of customers, right? And maybe you've sold into tens or, or hundreds of different accounts. The distributors and the manufacturers, they've got thousands of clients. The experience is always not on your side in terms of these, in terms of these, uh, any sort of community where a lot of things are sort of outsourced. So put people around you that even that playing field a little bit, right? You know, I act in that position for lots of brands because I've done hundreds and thousands of rounds of financing. I've sold hundreds of companies and I've helped you know, thousands of companies build and scale over time, you know, that's, I'm someone that serves that role with a lot of businesses, but it doesn't need to be a lawyer or it can be sort of an entrepreneur or can be someone, an industry participant, but on the human capital side, put that self around you as soon as you can afford to sort of hire people and build a brand and maybe issue people options to sit on your advisory board or whatnot, right? Then you want to build out your supply chain, right? You look, you've got the funds, You've, you've, you've projected where you're going to go. Now you've got to be able to do that. And you've got to be able to make and move enough product in order to do that. So build out your supply chain, get your agreements with you know, your key ingredient or, or uh, material suppliers, um, build out your distribution network if you're, you know, if you're going to sort of bigger chains so that you're not sort of internalizing everything, right? You know, know that you're sort of changing from a, maybe you're 
maybe you were making this in your garage to someone that's making it in an office or make, you know, commercializing these things. Um, but build that out. And, you know, if you can build it out in sort of a strategic way, right? Like, is this supplier my lifetime partner for this product? Or is this supplier a short-term solution for this product, right? And set it up accordingly. Hey, if they're a lifetime supplier, I want to make sure this is locked in. I've got a contract that says they'll give it to me and I'll buy it from them. And it's going to be forever. It's going to be no matter what. If they're a short-term person, you want to be able to say, hey, look, we're going to be in this for as long as we want. Um, if we decide that we want to go somewhere else, we can move. You know, what's, what is needed strategically in terms of those? Um, and then look, in terms of your IP, you want to sort of circle, right? Hey, do I have patents on the product products that I want to file? Do I have trademarks on them? Do I have trade secrets that I need to protect, right? Do I need to make sure that the people who are working on it have confidentiality obligations with respect to those, right? Whether it's outsourced supply side or internal, right? Do I have work made for hire agreements with all the people that are contributing to that, that say the company owns the fruits of this labor and not the other parties, right? Does the person who's manufacturing my product and who will by almost certainly be sort of updating bits and pieces of it as we go. Do we have an agreement that those updates belong to the company and not the manufacturer, right? Having a line of sight and owning all that IP and having that IP set up in a situation where at a base, I can give it to another party, right? Or at a base, if I'm going to IPO, I can tell investors that this is something that we can hold, right? And then even better than that, do I have sort of a competitive moat with these parties, right? Do I have non-competes with them or do I have an exclusionary things where, look, if I'm doing something really unique, can this producer of it or supplier of it only, only give it to me or can they give it to themselves? Can they give it to other parties, right? How easy can I make it for my competitors or how difficult can I make it for my competitors to come out, reverse engineer it, go find my, go find my um, suppliers and make something similar, right? Um, the Look, the better you have those sort of competitive moats built on the IP section, the more valuable a company you're going to be inherently. This is amazing advice. Whether or not you're even raising an investment round, I think all of this advice is very sound in any case. But of course, this comes back to the fact that if you do raise that round, you've got really smart things that you can do to spend your money wisely. And of course, that leads you either to A, build an incredible business off it if, if that's your one and done round, or B, I imagine this almost immediately gets you into starting to think about your next round as you're using these elements to show scale. And if you are doing that route, if you are planning to do the next round, like how soon after you raise your first million should you start thinking about planning for raising that next round? Is there any advice that you have in and around that? Oh, totally, Kevin. I think you should be planning your next round before you go out to plan your current one. Because what you want to be telling investors for this million dollar round is this is how long this money is going to last me, right? That could be six months, could be 12 months, could be 24, however long it is. And when I go back out to raise money, this is what the company will look like. This is how much money I'm going to raise. And this is the terms we think we're going to raise it on, right? You're going to want to tell investors that like, hey, if I'm raising it X, now when we do the next round, it's going to be 2X, right? And you want to have that sort of mapped out. And you want to understand when I'm taking in this first round, the million dollar round, right? Hey, is this investor, you know, if they're putting in a million dollars, is that sort of, do they, are they capped out or, or do they want to put in $5 million, but they're putting in a million now because that's all I can afford, right? 
You want to start building that list of that next round of investment when you're doing the current one, right? Because execution, sort of building the upswing, right? That's all, what it's all about. Building an upswing on valuation, building an upswing on sales, continuing to move forward. That takes a lot of planning, a lot of strategy. And you got to start, you're, a lot of entrepreneurs hate fundraising, right? They like building, they like making, <laughs> they like marketing, they like selling. They don't love fundraising, but it's integral. It's integral to your success. You have to do it. Um, like I said before, if you really hate it, bring someone on the team who's going to help cover that for you, right? But you've, you're almost going to be thinking about it constantly until you're, until you're very profitable, right? You know, break even, you're still going to need to raise money to build, you know, so you're going to be fundraising for a couple years and it's an almost constant process. It just resets itself every so often when you bring the cash in. Yeah. And I'll tell you, a lot of people might not like fundraising, but I haven't met any hardware entrepreneur that doesn't absolutely love the day that check comes in. <laughs> it's almost a, sure. it's a pretty much one hand feeds the other, right? So yes, it's a bit of, it's a bit of work, but like you said, you can bring experts on board to help with this process. There's a lot of people out there and Ryan, this is where I want to kind of lead into what you do at your firm. Tell everybody about how you help scaling hardware brands and how they can get in touch with you if they're in that position where they are looking to start scaling through financing. Yeah. Look, I mean, my firm, Genuzi Lewenden, you know, we do four things basically, but the biggest one is financing and MA, right? We do more of it in CPG than anybody else. We sell about 20 companies a year. We average about $2 billion to $2.5 billion in uh, exit value. We do about 100 to 200 rounds of financing. We average about a billion to billion and a half. A billion and a half dollars in invested capital. Depending on where you are in your life cycle, right? You're going to have different parties around you. On the later stage stuff, you're going to have someone like me who's going to help you, um, you know, negotiate the deal terms, who's going to be an advocate for the founders in the company, who's going to help you strategize on what things to put in place now to keep you in a position of power and parity and set up for success later on down the line as you bring in more participants into this company as you bring in investors and advisors and parties who you know weren't there from the beginning, uh, obviously have complete alignment with you on some issues, but on some issues don't, right? Um, you're gonna work with me and an investment banker, right? Um, who's also gonna help sort of help you put a story together, help pitch the company to other parties, um, investors, and help sort of coach you on doing uh, investor meetings with them and, and management meetings to help bring in that bigger round of financing. On the earlier stage of stuff, you know, it's much harder to find uh, help with the fundraising. It's harder to find the investment bankers. The checks don't really make sense in terms of what you're doing. So it's important to sort of bring in advisors. You know, in that, in the earlier stage stuff, we, um, you know, operate in both those roles in, in some sense, where we're helping you strategize, we're helping look at your company, we're helping you sort of uh, stress test and, and gut check some of the terms, the, the valuations, the financing, you know, what would be comparable against market just from our view of doing so much work here and then helping you sort of put in place uh, the controls and the terms that will help you get the round closed, but will help also set you yourself up for success down the line and the subsequent rounds. You know, how can I structure a board today to set myself up to, con to continue to keep board control later on through some of the terms and some of the levers and some of the pulleys? You know, those are all sort of case by case and fact specific situations. But, you know, we use our sort of experience of doing hundreds of rounds of these every year to say, look, these are the different things you could use. This is these are the types of investors you're going for. 
these are the types of things they'll reasonably accept. And here's how you put these things together to sort of get financed, but also get financed in a way that um, continues to set yourself up for control and success later on down the line. That's super helpful. Ryan, what's the website they can go to for those that are listening in? And of course, as always, I will put all the show links in the bottom of the show notes episodes. You can just click through and listen through there. What's that website and uh, how can they find Uh, out more? Yep. The firm's website is glaw.us. So www.glaw.us. You know, you can find me on LinkedIn at Ryan Lewenden and, you know, please reach out. If you have any questions, you can shoot us a note. I'm happy to set up a call and talk to anybody about any of the issues they're facing. Amazing. Ryan, thanks again for all of your time and effort. Great nuggets on the show today and uh, really looking forward to talking to you again. Thanks and take care. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.